This is Tommy's Outdoors 104. This episode is a long time coming because today we're going to talk about MPAs. MPAs, for those of you who don't know, are marine protected areas, which seems to be the only way we can protect the oceans in the 21st century. Our guest today are, is a bunch of scientists. I think it's an episode we never had so many guests at once in the episode. Um, so our guests are Naomi Wilson, Anushka Miller and Alex Calloway, and they're going to introduce Project MARPAM. Project MARPAM is a cross-border project that is aimed at recommending uh, and recommending management uh, techniques and monitoring of marine protected areas. And obviously, we're going to talk, this is very short description of what Project MARPAM is. It is so much more and we're going to talk about this in this episode. Um, I just want to point out how important it is to have those cross-border projects like MARPAM, because as we know, wildlife doesn't care about our little national borders. They just live in the geographical regions. So it's super important so that those uh, concepts and those projects and marine protected areas are cross-border and are consistently managed. Okay, um, enough of that. You will hear much more and just in a second. And as usual, before I let you enjoy this episode of Tommy's Outdoors podcast, if you want to support the podcast, if you want to, the biggest thing you can do is to recommend that podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues and anyone who is interested in what we're talking about here in the podcast, in this episode, and in general in Tommy's Outdoors. And now you can also buy me a coffee. Buymeacoffee.com slash Tommy's Outdoors. Link is in the description of the show. You can get in there and make sure I have enough caffeine to keep bringing you those episodes and uh, keep recording them and keep uh, editing them and uh, uploading. So that's it. Uh, and now, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, Project Marpam with Naomi Wilson, Anushka Miller, and Alex Calloway. Okay, folks, welcome to the Tommy's Outdoors. It's it's great to have you all on the podcast today. Thank you. Tommy, thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Uh, folks, since there's a quite a good crowd on the podcast today, I think it's only fair to start with a round of introductions. So maybe. You can start with the token gentleman if you want, Alex. <laughs> yeah, gentleman's generous. But uh, yeah, so I'm Alex Calloway on the the project coordinator um, for the Marpan project and um, the seabed mapping leader, AFI. So those two roles tie in to deliver um, various parts of the, the Marpan project. Go for Naomi next then. Uh, okay, I am Naomi Wilson and I'm the project manager for Marpan. 
And I'm Anushka Mala. I am um, involved, I'm, I'm, I'm not working in Northern Ireland. I'm uh, based at the Scottish Association for Marine Science, where I do science communication. So I'm involved with the communications of this project. So I am one of these dangerous people that probably have an overview, but not uh, a huge amount of depth in, in, in the different topics. Uh, so I'm, I'm really um, a little bit like you, Tommy, uh, constantly finding out what people are doing uh, in, in, in on this project all about marine protected areas. I was going to I was going to say that it sounds a little bit like me. <laughs> Fantastic. So, folks, we are, we are today here to talk about the MARPAM project. So maybe, you know, first things first, what is MARPAM project? What what what's the goal? What you what you're doing as a part of that project? Naomi, do you want to get started? Uh, okay. Uh, the MARPAM project is um, really putting together both science and a stakeholder a opinions uh, and desires for what they want done on marine protected areas in their regions and in Northern Ireland to site-specific regions. So really, we are going out there and asking communities and people involved in the protected area regions what they would like a, in, you know, to help them protect the areas, to give them a sense of ownership of what is, is occurring and what the statutory bodies in the regions are doing to protect these areas. And we are also doing a, a lot of science on uh, seabirds and benthic habitats, uh, cetaceans and seals, and some coastal erosion models. And we're, incorporate, we're merging the two together to generate uh, benefit maps and story maps and creating management plans at the end of the project to present to the regional statutory bodies to say, this is what the local communities want. This is what the science is showing from these regions. This is what we recommend uh, needs to be done. Yeah, I think, I think the important thing is to understand that um, protected areas on land have a lot longer history than in the sea. And we know the land a lot better than we know the sea. So there is quite a strong desire um, in the society at large, I think, by politicians, to really effectively protect parts of our ocean. People, people ha have strong views about that. Um, but how we do that, actually, because wanting to is one thing, being able to do that effectively is quite another. And that means we actually need to know an awful lot about the sea in order to protect them. If you don't know how a species lives or where it lives or how many of them are there, you can't, can't protect them and you don't know if what you're doing to protect them works. So a lot of what the MARPAN project is about is trying to backfill some of that missing knowledge, uh, but then also um, protecting the, the sea is such a different environment to the land. For one thing, people don't live there. We, the police isn't there. If, if it's kind of being not uh, adhered to strictly, um, so can you actually enforce it? So in very many ways, we are working with the communities to make sure that the communities that live by the sea understand the, um, the protection measures that may be brought in, but are also in favour of them because they've been part of uh, designing them, them in. So I think that's um, a really important part of understanding the overall purpose of what that project's all about, what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, sure, sure, and and so this is a, this is very important that you're you're it's not only science element of it, but also engagement within communities. Um, before I before I ask following quite a follow up question on this, maybe for again kind of to set a scene for for listeners who may not be completely familiar with uh, what MPAs are or like 
could you could you explain the concept of MPAs? What are marine protected areas, and do we have any at the moment? Is it a completely new concept? Like, how does it work? Alex, do you want to? So, yeah, I'll jump in. Um, MPAs are marine protected areas, and they come under a whole different range of guises. Um, so, whilst the UK was still part of the EU. Um, then we'd conform to EU guidelines around certain types of uh, MPA designations. Um, and then each nation within the UK, each devolved nation has responsibility for setting up their own types of MPAs as well. Um, so in, in England, those are marine conservation zones alongside special areas of conservation, special protected areas, um, sites for special scientific interest in Scotland. Those are nature conservation, marine protected areas. Um, and in the Republic of Ireland, there will be, um, they're not quite as far along, but they'll be very similar to the, the marine conservation zones, which are, are set up independently of the EU process. Um, and in Northern Ireland, the same, we, we've got marine conservation zones and a whole range of different um, past designations following the, the EU kind of guidelines. So the idea is that you, an MPA under whichever guise it takes is set up to focus on a species or an environment which is sensitive to um, human pressures, but is also ecologically important in some way. So the idea is to retain those, um, those factors, those elements of the marine environment for for future generations and to to do that we either have an effort to maintain things in the status quo or efforts to improve them so the idea is that, that the, an mpa just gives a focus for the the monitoring and management which is what marpam is marine protected area monitoring and management and that allows specific areas for conservation to be I guess, separated in some way from areas where wider use of the marine environment goes on. Um, but the whole of the UK marine environment is covered by the UK marine strategy. So there can be wider protections if, if deemed necessary. And, and the wider European seas are covered by the, the marine strategy framework directive. So there's all these different options for, for protection and conservation and management. And the MPAs just provide a focus for those efforts because you can't monitor and manage everywhere all at once. Mm -hmm. I think, I think um, a lot of people always think that uh, protected areas, everything is protected in them and you are not allowed to do anything in them. And that I think is important to understand is not the case. You protect an area for a certain species or habitat, as, as Alex just said. And that means it is only activities that affect those that, um, that you need to manage. And it doesn't mean that they get prohibited. It might just be that you kind of say, well, at this time, the species um, lays its eggs or has young. At that time, just like when you go shooting, there are certain seasons where you're not allowed to do something. Or where you kind of say you can keep on doing this, but you've got to find a different method. Uh, of, of, of doing it. So it's it's important to understand that there are, there are some uh, MPAs that are no take zones and complete, but I think they are very, very, very limited and they're not the, certainly not the norm. 
Um, the other important thing to understand, I think, is that that we are talking very much on um, on a on a small local scale, and then we have here um, with the with, with our project, we look at. Um, national and, and cross-border kind of um, management kind of arrangements. But it really fits into a very large uh, international kind of effort because the UN for its, you know, the sustainability goals, the development goals, um, they kind of want to see about 30% of the seabed kind of protected in one form or another on a, on a global kind of level. And some really big MPAs have been set up around Antarctica and so on as well. Um, which will function again differently. There are there's lots of different legal kind of frameworks. Alex already kind of showed how complicated this all can be, but that's legalese. That's for you know people that work in this. But for for the general um, public to understand is that that we are doing something that really the entire world's come together as saying is important to happen, and we are all learning how to do this. So some countries are a bit further ahead. They've been doing it for longer, um, but we all face different challenges, you know, and so it's it's somewhere where, where there is a lot of learning going on. And that is why projects like MAPAM are, are being funded so that we can do that learning and, in, and, and do that learning in a, in a consistent kind of manner and in a, in a scientific kind of manner. Yeah, you, you kind of answered already uh, partially questions that I, that, I going to, that I was going to ask because we heard about the marine, especially, you know, I heard in, in the Republic of Ireland about marine protected areas. And then in theory, there is marine protected area, but then the bottom trawling is going on, like all the fishing activities are going on. And then, you know, environmental NGOs go ahead and it's like, well, that's, you know, it's only on paper. There's no protection going on in there. Yes, and, and that, that, that there is many, many aspects in this. For one thing is a protection area in, in order to know how they work, it takes a long time, you know, uh, to, to protect the species needs a huge amount of knowledge. And just saying we are prohibiting everything may not have any consequence that you want. You've got to really know where species is, where it's coming, how it's moving. And we, we know still, I mean, I'm a marine biologist and I'm always shocked to know how little we do know about species still, because it takes a lot of time. And so, so one thing I think with MPAs that we have to understand is that it will take time until we have really effective MPAs because we, we, we are learning, we are still really learning. And the other thing is, as you said, if, if there is an MPA, but it isn't protected for something on the seabed, for example, um, or where only a small area of it is, then other activities can go on. We can't just kind of stop people from doing something. Mm. But I, I presume there isn't, there isn't a element of, of review of an ongoing, of existing marine protected areas as well, and kind of adjusting uh, protections that are there as well. Yeah, and I think that that's the main the main focus of this is yes, activities which can be considered destructive aren't immediately curtailed in these areas. Um, but that's when when you think about the resources that the various governments have um, for all of the all of the um, policy guidance guidance really, um, especially the the UN Sustainable Development Goals. It, that the whole all governments are trying to maintain sustainable use of the seas, so that means still having some form of fishing, still having some form of sailing or kayaking or scuba diving, whatever those activities might be, um, and so to wade in and and just stop those instantly when, as Anushka says, the evidence isn't necessarily adequate to do that, but the the MPAs give you the focus where you can spend those resources to develop that that information and then as you say there's a review um, periodically 
um, where each of these, particularly within the UK, each of these sites have to be reported on every six years to see what the, the change is. And so we're trying to develop different ways to monitor that more, or monitor that change more effectively so that we can provide better guidance to, to the policymakers. So that's, that's kind of where we're at is that, yeah, that, that there are, there are MPAs, there are sites from the outside looking in, it may, may seem that nothing's happening, but it's, it's a long process to get to a point where you have enough evidence to either say, yes, this thing can carry on without any significant effect on, on the wider ecosystem, or no, this particular activity has to stop because we've now got the evidence that says that it's, it's having a, a massive effect. Mm. You know, folks, it, it, it kind of seems to me like you are almost upon for the mission impossible um, because I can, I can only imagine all those you know, like, like the big, big thing about Marpam is that it's cross-border and across multiple administrative areas. Uh, you know, how you even attempt to manage that? Because I, I guess each of these sites pull in their own way, and especially if they, any particular area spans across multiple borders, I, I, I don't know, I'm guessing, but I imagine it's like, oh, it's them who take all the fish. No, 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 it's them who take all the fish. Like, how you even, you know, try to address this problem and, and because it must be incredibly charged politically and then you try to inject, you know, good old science into that. How you even... I, I think um, that's why the stakeholder in, uh, engagement is so important here. I mean, you don't resolve things very easily if finger pointing happens. So we need to find new ways of how we how we actually work together. And part of it is really not only understanding how the marine environment works, but also how the people use that particular environment, because there's nobody there. It's, it's not that we've, we've done an awful lot of that kind of work before. We are not planning our, you know, on land planning is, has a very long history in the sea, much less so, and is much less done. And the resources are much less there. There's not a police force zooming about the ocean all the time, checking out uh, everything. So, so you know, we, we can start to use more. There, there is a lot of use of satellite, for example, and boats must have satellite kind of beacons on them to show where, where they go. And we could, but, but it's all complicated. You know, data protection comes into this and who's got access to that information. There are challenges there, but there are some solutions. But we are, we are working on, on understanding both understanding the marine environment and whether the species, especially the big species. I mean, Alex's work package looks more at the, the species that are actually kind of in a certain area because they grow there, you know, like the, the plants, the barnacles, the small things. But if you're trying to protect the larger species, the whales and dolphins, uh, the basking sharks, the mobile species, of course, you have to work very much cross-border. And yes, the complexity gets larger, but, but we don't have to do that. That's not the Marpham's project. Uh, we, we, are, we, have just, we are a project, we are filling in knowledge and we are handing that on to the administrations afterwards, that knowledge, and that will be, be, be taken on further there. So, so we, we are kind of a, 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 a few years of an intervention where some bits of lacking knowledge is, is put together that then goes back to the government. That We are not the ones that make the rules, we are just recommending uh, management plans at the end um, that we've come up with with the communities. And therefore, also the administrations play quite a big part in the project. So, so because because it's no point of us coming up with a great solution that the administrations wouldn't want or wouldn't fit them. So it is it is a very there's a lot of diplomacy involved in in, in their science certainly. 
um, and finding ways for you know, for all of our communities to work together on the issue and not so much just representing your personal um, needs, but understanding that you can meet your personal needs, perhaps also really quite well if you work with others rather than against others and trying to manage that environment that you need as a fisherman, um, angler, um, um, tourism provider. I think um, one of the really important parts of MARPAM is that we are giving people who may not normally have a voice or an input in, into uh, management plans an opportunity to do that. Uh, and, uh, so as it's been mentioned, there are two cross-border regions. Uh, MARPAM, as it's EU Interreg 5A funded, we're in Western Scotland, Northern Ireland and Ireland. So there is a lot of different voices and obviously different statutory bodies. But steering groups in the regions are talking to those in the areas and people with small voices, maybe people who enjoy walking there or people who are even just part of a village community, they can go, they're invited and they are given a voice. Uh, they contribute to what they want to see as a benefit or as an output of the management plans that we're doing for the project. Uh, we're writing that down and we're giving it to them to review. We also have members of the statutory bodies in those regions in the steering groups so that they can hear what the communities are saying and they can you know, obviously bring that back to their own uh, you know, bodies uh, and say, look, this is what we're hearing. But um, yeah, the steering groups are helping us develop uh, benefit mappings for what each area wants from their, their management plans. And this will obviously feed back into what we're developing as well. So we're not, again, just creating just one standard template and saying, this is what's going to happen. We're saying, what do you want? Uh, in terms of polit politics or finger pointing, um, that hasn't really happened because everybody's just glad of giving uh, or having a chance just to say what they want, what, they, um, what they're scared of happening in their area. Uh, again, it's, you know, can I still walk my dog on the beach? We've They've been doing it for years or um, I love, you know, swimming or, or paddle boarding in this region. What happens if, you know, more enforcement comes in? I don't want to change my ways. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're saying we're just saying, OK, you tell us what we want. We will put it together. Um, everybody gets a voice, not just the big people. And we'll make sure that if... Um, we'll make sure that we can put this together in, in uh, our plans. What's, what is happening in, because obviously stakeholder engagement in, in any conservation project is probably the key, but it's also the most difficult. What is happening if, you know, scientific data and recommendations are, you know, clearly at odds with what local communities want, right? Because surely this 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 is happening. So you know, let's. Uh, I'm, I'm making this up, by the way. But let's say we have a fishing community, who all you know, who's do doing certain fishing practices, and then you have a hard evidence data like, oh, this is unsustainable. You can't do that. Um, what's what is happening then? Because clearly you have a conflict at your hands, and then you're risking losing your credibility, right? Because then the stakeholders are like, oh no, they just want to you know, take away our lifestyle. But is there any mechanism, like what's happening in those cases? To my mind, a lot of this is about 
um, exactly why we take this dual approach of, of with the stakeholders and the science, because it's about trust development. You know, you've got to trust each other. And we have worked way too much in kind of, um, as you said, finger pointing. Uh, they're trying to do this to me. They're trying to do that to me. Um, if you understand overall what everybody um, gets out of this, if you are starting to understand what everybody's pressures are, if you are understanding the long-term planning as well. I mean, if I'm a fisherman and I've just invested a hell of a lot of money into a new boat, you know, because I didn't know that probably in two years' time legislation was coming in and I would have invested into a different kind of boat um, if I'd known that that was coming in. So it's a lot about working together from the outset in the planning. And that is what, what I think will need to happen. We need to find a new way overall of, of planning our environment, one that isn't just about statutory, but does bring the people in because it is the people that we, we, we can't actually manage the environment. We can only manage the people that kind of um, do things in the environment. So, so this has to be very much front and center of it. And the science has to be part of that as well. And people have to understand where the science is coming from and they have to trust the science. Um, because otherwise they will just say, oh, it's a wrong data or I don't see that. I, I, I go out there and I see lots of fishes um, and and so so it is about all of us understanding each other's perspectives, and that is takes a lot of time. Talking to each other, building relationships, building the right kind of relationships, making sure that you really understand each other's perspectives. Um, it's about learning an awful lot about our communities as well. No, I think um, that that conflict interface, uh, yes, particularly the the. Um, the T5 work package, which is undertaking all the stakeholder engagement, um, that that's providing a really sound evidence base from 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 the local stakeholders in each of the regions uh, and within the two um, sites of interest in Northern Ireland and, and the cross border in Carlingford Lock. But in a way, the project can be quite conceited about this because we're only getting to that point. It still has to go to the, the policymakers. It still has to go up. So that, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that that conflict interface or the conflict resolution will come after. And it's not just scientific evidence that, that policymakers have to take into account. It's the whole range of, of, of different factors. Even and, and even policy itself, if, if somebody, if a politician has decided on a policy or a a party has and they they want to pursue that then it doesn't matter what the scientific evidence says in some respects because there's a there's a balance to be had um so you know like i said we we can provide all of that those um the components that would hopefully make that decision easier for the policymakers, but that's why we have public consultations or that so the policymakers once they come up with an adaptation hopefully where each part of evidence comes to the it contributes to the best solution, then that goes out to the public consultation. So those people that feel that they would be negatively impacted have another chance to to contribute. But the hope is, with by as Anushka says, trying to undertake this new mechanism where that that engagement comes up front, comes up earlier, then the evidence base that's contributing to that policy hopefully comes through in that end policy. So so the conflict should be reduced. But it's, you know, it's all shoulds and coulds and woulds where we have to, we still have to get through the process to see where we're actually, how it performs and where we actually are. We're trying to to make this small change in, in the implementation of these things. Hmm. Can you, can you uh, 
outline what is the timeline of the project so so you know the, the, yeah like entire timeline and where you are at the moment in the in that timeline um well at the moment we are in the final year um really of, of getting all the science field work completed um the modeling work that we're using to help inform us uh, from the science aspect uh, of the management plans that will be carried out in October through to March. Uh, for steering groups and stakeholder engagement, we have been uh, slightly impacted by COVID, so most of that's been virtual. And uh, as discussed already, Anuska and I have been out on location uh, following COVID protocols but creating films and uh, other media things that we can use to show the stakeholders what the project is doing. And this will help obviously get them more engaged in what the science is doing and what we're doing in their areas. Uh, so the fieldwork's being done now, or finished now. The modeling work will be completed then in March. And then we will go on to working on the management plans and they will be sent, then sent out for a consultation process um, with the stakeholders so that they can get involved in what we're, you know, we're proposed or as recommendations to the statutory bodies. And as Alex says, that will give them an opportunity to review what the science is saying, what they want from the, their areas and what we're recommending uh, their local air bodies do. And obviously, if they're, you know, reading this and putting in their own opinions, that will be fed back into the final draft. Um, the project is due to end in September 22. So there's uh, quite a lot of work still to go ahead, but it's progressing quite well. Wow. It's, it sounds very, very reasonable. And as, as you're making like a videos and kind of like a things like that to, to increase engagement, to kind of not be bore, super boring. Yeah, and I mean showing. No. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I think because of COVID in particular, that's become quite important because we were talking about how important it is to develop trust and to build connections and so on. And um, I think people in the communities really need to engage a lot more than there have been with kind of all these consultations. I mean, not a lot of people de facto look into their newspaper and kind of said, oh, yeah, there is a consultation. I'm going to go along and have long discussions. And then the, what, what then happens is that you only have those people who have a very vested interest kind of coming along often to these kind of events. And then it becomes more lobbying kind of thing because you're representing your industries and then you don't build this kind of community uh, approach to it. So we do need to get the community much more involved. And that is a slow process. That's a process to which MARPAM contributes, but that's a societal process that will happen over 20 years, hopefully, that people think I'm actually thinking that I have a voice and I should be heard when it is about my local forest or my beach, uh, my, the environment that I live in. So, so that they will, even if they have no you know, direct economic benefit from it, kind of thing, well, why should I go along? I'll, I'll let so-and-so go along. He's got a boat or they've got a tourism business. Um, I'm just the one that walks my dog here. But you have as much right and you'll be really upset if all of a sudden you can't go anywhere where, where you go to replenish your spirit, you know. And these people are really important in these meetings to actually help 
to create that understanding rather than the against each other because because having having the entire community there is really important um i think what naomi was was saying about the timeline that that we haven't talked about yet there is this modeling aspect because when you're looking into creating plans you can't just look at now you have to understand also what an environment's likely to look like in 20 or 30 years time and we are going through times of massive change with climate change so some of the work that we're doing is modeling what an environment is likely to look like in 2050 because um, legislation is slow. So you've got to put legislation in that kind of um, takes that takes heed of, of, of the future. So let's say you're protecting a species in a certain place. It takes you five, eight years to get this legislation in. And, you know, five years later, actually, due to climate change, the species is moving on because it's getting warmer and it's moving north and you, you're now not protecting that kind of right spot anymore. So, so this modeling kind of takes, um, tries to anticipate some of that. So you kind of get the feeling of how complex, actually, when I, when I at the beginning I said, we all want to protect it, but it isn't easy to do so. And I think we are slowly getting around to really understanding why it isn't easy to do so. No, like like I said, it's it sounds like Mission Impossible almost. In it, in uh, in terms of this uh, engagement and, and reaching out to, you know, wider community and like you said, not only uh, people with vested interest, but also every you know, like everyday folk. What what are the what are the actions that you're taking? Like, so what are the techniques? Or is it like social media uh, campaigns? Is it like a campaigns with the billboards? Like, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, that, that it does depend on the region. Sorry. Um, we find that a, what can work in Scotland mightn't work as effectively in, in Ireland. So in Scotland, we have two regions, Argyll and the Outer Hebrides. And uh, we've got two policy officers that are just, you know, they're designated to work in, in the Argyll or in the Hebrides. Uh, and they work with the community. Uh, just to get their own voice. And I think um, they have been great in, in getting involved in local film festivals uh, to promote the project and, and you know, what's going on in their own MPA, you know, their MPAs in their own area. And um, Anuska, you can correct me if I get the location wrong, but I think Hebrides, they had a, a lovely um, video in Gaelic uh, and where they, a stakeholder actually took on board themselves to create a video to ask local uh, business owners and uh, recreational users of the sea what they thought had occurred in the past, what has changed now, and um, if it's changed for the better or the worst, and um, what they themselves feel would happen if more protection or um, changes to how the sea use uh, was you know if it was brought in how that would impact them and it, it's been great because you're not getting just the one voice and the one oh yes it's it's been horrible but it's it's you know it's getting better we're getting um conflicting opinions and it's it's just wonderful to actually give them that voice to, to and that opportunity to say look we're, we're not all on, on the same board but we're all interested in in using this area for our own enjoyment for our own uh, economic use so for ireland we find that facebook has been very effective um and it, 
because a lot of people here use Facebook. So we have a local uh, Irish region Facebook, which we update with posts from the science work that we're doing in in Northern Ireland, Ireland, so that people who go on can see what we're doing in their areas. And we're, we obviously then update it with like um, monthly posts about what's occurring in Scotland as well, so that they can see how wide our work is. Um, and they can also go on the project website and, and see, uh, you know, updated storyboards or updated events and uh, news that the project's doing. And of course, we have a very active Twitter account, which we regularly update as well. So we're, we are doing as much as we can to get what we're doing out there to the public. Yeah, I think that's um, it's part of really society at large doesn't know much about the sea. We're not taught much about it. It's usually not in the national curriculum. Although we have, you know, all, all the, the three nations that we are talking uh, that are part of MAPAM are very much maritime nations that have a very strong um, link to the sea, still people know very, very little. Uh, that's an international issue. You know, we are living on a blue planet, which is predominantly functioning because of the, 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 the watery environment and the sea, um, yet we know little. But um, that's uh, something called ocean literacy. That's, again, a UN-level kind of activity that is being understood. And, again, our project makes a very small contribution to that one. Um, we, we were going to do quite a lot of school engagement. I actually created a – we've got one of the species that is protected uh, is, a, is a flapper skate, which is the largest okay. kind of skate in our waters. And I actually got somebody to make me a, a life-size model of a flapper skate that I, that I can take along to school. Yeah. We started this off. Huge. And then COVID arrived. Yes, it's fantastic. It weighs about 30, 35 kilos. And, and we have to carry it. I've got it on a stretcher. When we, carry it. Uh, we have got yeah. white doors. Full length stretcher. Yeah. And it's, it's huge. It's a, it's a nice thing. But COVID kind of put quite a lot of a, a spanner in the works with the schools so far. So we haven't done as much of the schoolwork. We, we're kind of holding it back all the time, hoping that we can rev up. But the project has the limits and we don't know how long COVID keeps us from going into schools. And, and that kind of experience is simply not the same if you do that online. So, um, so, so, so this is one thing. Another thing that um, we are looking at is creating at the, at the very end um, um, three um, kind of displays, public displays. Um, where we show, where we have somewhere where people come as visitors or so on, where they can kind of access some of that information, some of our films regularly. We're at the moment considering and start to talk to ferry um, operators, for example, whether if you're on a ferry that goes over a certain area, for example, in the Hebrides, could you actually on the ferry have a, you know, touch screen where you can access that kind of information from our project so that while you're, you're going, you can find out what's at the bottom here, what happens, ah, there is an MPA here, what is an MPA, um, what's going on. So we're looking into those, but again, we're a small project, um, uh, we have a time limit to it, so, so there, there, this is only a, a small component of what we're doing, but it is an important one that feeds into this global ocean literacy movement. No, and you're, you, you hit the nail on the head here that the engagement with schools is super important, and not not only with children, but you know that's a story that I probably already told on on the podcast. That uh, one of my friends, uh, her friend, is a school teacher, and she's she showed her photo with the shark like that I caught, and she goes like, "No, no, this is this is fake. Like, there's no sharks in Ireland. Like, 
and it's like what you're a school teacher like how like so i i guess even educating perhaps teachers as well is a is a huge aspect of it um so far what's the what's the response like do you have do you, do you is it too early to gauge like is it overwhelmingly positive response or you already have a first you know glimpse of people who might be upset about it and, and kind of hostile to the whole idea that all these damn scientists are coming here and gonna tell us how to live and we're here for like 60 years you know well i can speak for ireland and saying that we're getting a huge positive response um we have a a great project staff um who are you know cannot stop talking about what they're doing um and it's just the enthusiasm just you know commutes across to to people um and everyone wants to get involved because we're going to them and saying we want your opinion on what we want to do um and they're they're responding really positively to it and um yeah i i i I can't say say that we're getting much negative response, but overwhelming positive, and it's just feeds into our own desire to do the best job that we can. That's that's, ex that's excellent. That's that's very optimistic. Yeah, we we also some of this is as we heard because some of it is also about it's about trust, as I said at the beginning, and um, so it is about who says some sometimes something is as important as what they're saying. And some of what we've been playing with, because it is a research project, is really thinking, okay, if you are talking, if it's an academic talking, what is that compared to if that is somebody that might work for a, a conservation agency or if that's somebody who works for a government agency? Will they respond differently, depending on who you are? I mean, we, we, we are easily a research project and we are, we are a development project. We are not coming in as the police force that tells, we, we are not the ones that will be telling them, you can't do X, Y, or Z here. They know that. And therefore, I suppose they're not really hostile towards us, and 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 what we are and they they realize that this needs developing too. I mean, I think nobody can be as naive to think that there's more and more activity going on in the sea. We now have renewable energy. We're looking towards the sea for for energy for, for the energy of the future and so on. So there's there's more and more um, technological uh, abilities to use the, the marine environment, and therefore there will be more and more activity in the sea, and that needs more management. And so everybody, I think that that operates in the sea is aware of that and and um and and that that has to happen so i've not come across much hostility either may well be that they are that they are saying grumbly things when we're gone um but uh, <laughs> not not to our faces <laughs> gotcha well i haven't seen much negative uh, opinions on social media where you would think they would be so <laughs> fingers crossed it continues i just think we've we've ended up um for the for the stakeholder um, steering groups that I've been involved with um, in the Irish regions. So both in, in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland, um, it's for want of a better word, they've been really professional. So we've had really healthy discussions. There have been points raised, which aren't just full of positivity. It's, you know, that there, there are very impactful statements, but it, it's because that's the forum To, to get those points across and and I think because because there is that engagement that's why we're not seeing um you know the a response from the from out of the blue or or on social media or anything like that because they, they've been given the platform 
um, to get get those points across. So it's really healthy discussions, and it it's, and it and it allows it to to allows people to get across their concerns and, and those more negative points. But the whole point of that is is so that those views are, are counted. And I think that's why we're seeing the positivity in the wider wider sphere. That's very good. And so after these parts, as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, like after these parts, you will formulate recommendations and and then you present those recommendations to authorities, let's let's say, right? Is that getting that right? Yeah. So is there do you expect any, you know, anxiety mounting once once you about to do that? Because uh, you know, I'm not terribly optimistic when from just from the talking to people, like when there is a certain measures to protect environment and so on, they always getting diluted and like you're expecting this to happen. You're, there's, is there a bit of anxiety of like, yeah, we have this fantastic plan and we have spoken to communities and then like, yeah, but economic growth, right? And everything gets, gets is there that aspect of, of anxiety? Personally, I think for, from my side, like I said, we, we were in that special position where we can, we can offer that advice and then that, that's out of our hands. So I, I wouldn't have any anxiety per se around, around what happens next because the project will have made it and, and everybody involved would have made their best efforts to pr provide the best evidence to, to those people making the decisions. And, and we're not here to make those decisions. And, and I'm not sure that any of us would really want to be in a position to, to make those because you, you, I don't think anybody you in probably the, should. In, you probably in that should. position is going to win. <laughs> Uh, you're always going to lose out, though, aren't you? You're always going to do something wrong for somebody. So either you haven't limited fishing enough or you've limited fishing too much. And, and we always come back to fishing. And I, we need to say there are so many different activities and, and fishing is just an easy target because it's so obvious. But as Nishka said, so the renewable energy campaigns, aggregate extraction, all these other industries which take advantage of, of the sea – by doing right by one, you're going to be doing wrong by another. And that balance is, is an unenviable task for anybody to try to strike. Um, but I think we've just got to be realistic with the project can go so far. And then um, I think the only anxiety I have is about the amount of time we have to write it all up. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's where the anxiety comes in. <laughs> We're going to get stopped. Get, they're, they're going to stop paying us at some point and, uh, and then we have to get it all out. So. <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah, I think I think also there shouldn't be much of a surprise coming. So we don't. We might get some negativity, but that may come from people that haven't been engaged in the process. Those that have been engaging with the process will have seen all of those, and we are not just putting. You know, we're not talking to people, then create our recommendations and give them to government. You create recommendations and then give them back to your stakeholders before uh, for discussion before they go to government. So, so it's uh, you're really trying to to make not just build trust and then abuse it, but build trust and 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 and, and continue having it because otherwise it's 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 a you know the next time people will not engage in this process. So it's really important that that is the case. Um, it may well mean that some people are upset that they haven't engaged earlier, but then they have an opportunity because this is a this is an iterative process. You know, it, it carries on. Um, 
the the other aspect I think to to consider is that, that, that these plans will also and you alluded to that at the beginning you know as we are learning more about what works and as we are monitoring the environment these plans change anyway and uh, and, and have to change the species change where they, how they move change and so it it has to be a very dynamic um, kind of approach. Uh, and and so we are just developing. In some ways, we are we are in a relatively early stage, and we have a role to play in developing those structures. Um, you know, we are making some recommendations. We're developing some methodologies to perhaps allow us to monitor um, our MPAs. It's expensive. Boat time is expensive. Going out there with robots is a is a very expensive activity. Um, you know, we're all with COVID, we, we're all having probably a little bit less public money available. So we need to find cost effective ways of doing that. That is also part of the project, contributing just a little bit to, um, to, to, to that. It's a, it's a big, um, you know, we are, we are we're talking about the Marpan project, but the Marpan project is really a project uh, in, a, in, a, in a large industry and an international kind of industry. And, and we've not talked much about the monitoring that is, is, is the other side of it. We're talking, we are, we are still talking about the, the establishing of the plans, not yet about so much about the monitoring that follows after. Yeah. And the monitor, monitoring will come later as a part of different projects or is it kind of like an extension of what you're going to be doing? In the well, future? it's statutory. So then it will be uh, the statutory agencies having to, to do this. But we are, we are hopefully or there will be other projects that will develop more the, the, the right kind of protocol. Now, how should you do this? And that's really important in, to, to find because if you have to monitor everything, it's a hugely expensive activity. The more you can uh, define um, the individual species, for example, that, that are really important kind of like, like thermometers in the sea that you kind of say, if they are affected, then, 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 then the ecosystem is, is, is changing. Or if you can measure some chemical factors or something, and, and if, if you can find those, then that's brilliant. You know, they did this in coral reefs. You know, if you try and monitor every coral reef and, and have to go down to species level, that's a disaster. If you can kind of say, okay, we're just uh, managing to, to kind of go out there and kind of say, okay, we take a quadrat down there and look how much cor coral is, is healthy and how much of it is bleached, for example, that's a much easier way around it. And, and they found in some, of, in some other environments really good mechanisms um, to, to monitor that, that are effective and, and, and to develop the right kind of monitoring programs uh, is, I think, still a, a, still a challenge that, 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 that we are only contributing very small amounts to. If I'm right, Alex, I mean, again, I'm talking a little bit the very big picture here. Well, but that's it. And I, and I think that's really one of the big strengths of MARPAM is that compared to statutory monitoring, is where where it's a standalone project. It, it's it, it's not risk free, but we have much greater liberty to try out these these different monitoring methods. So that you know that's we've got this component of of novel monitoring, and so using Sam's AUV, either in the Scottish locks or in in Strangford lock, as we did last month, to monitor particular features or to see if monitoring particular features is feasible using baited remote underwater video cameras with the University of Ulster, um, using the, the laser line scanner to look at, at different um, features in, in very fine scale and, and building that information is much easier to do that in a project like MARPAM than it is with statutory monitoring because you have to deliver these results in a certain way for statutory monitoring. So what we can do is hopefully we provide a basis by saying, look, this isn't a risk anymore. 
using an AUV to monitor this feature in these in this environment is is perfectly sound, and that increases the efficacy of our monitoring into the future. So that's where MARPAM influences, hopefully. Monitoring as we go forward. Um, yeah, it's a finite project, so on, onward monitoring, as Anushka says, comes back to that statutory basis. But hopefully, we can provide evidence for a greater suite of tools which improve that monitoring capability, and then in turn improve the management of all of these areas for every stakeholder. And that's the grand aim. Uh, whether we get there is a different thing. Yeah. 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 Okay, folks, I, I would like to slide, switch the gears a little bit and ask you about specific like areas of um, scientific work. Can you can you highlight like what are the um, you know, I, I, I read about the birds, seabirds monitoring and, and so on. So can you can you, uh, you know, give us a little bit more on, on this? Um, I think Anuska and I have been sort of doing a bit of that round Donegal filming that day this week. Um, we are doing for the seabird monitoring, monitoring um, sorry, the seabird work package. Uh, we're creating a model to look at the distribution and abundance of key species. And we're incorporating a climate change model into that work as well. So again, um, as has been mentioned, this will help, you know, with future planning for MPAs and uh, management of the same. Uh, we've been uh, also trying to use uh, innovative methodologies as well to see if there's better ways of, of counting birds that are, are of um, of importance uh, and are, that are protected within these MPAs. And um, I think for an example, we can use, uh, we've been trying uh, a passive, uh, non-invasive way of counting shearwaters using spaniels. And it's been, a, it's been never tried before, uh, but we're getting a preliminary good results. Um, uh, we're a, yeah, it's it's a lot of a uh, field work to create these models, um, but it is worth it. it. It does help, you know, towards future planning and and future management of the NPAs. Uh, the data that we're also making uh, are collecting. I will be fed into seabird consensus counts, which are a done every number of years to to see historically any changes in uh, species numbers and their use of, of areas. And I believe there is a reports on seabird and fisheries interactions to see the impact of uh, heavy trafficked areas on seabird distributions. Uh, do uh, do herring gulls follow sea? You know, fishing vessels when they're out at sea. You know, doing trawls, they're collecting fish. You know, is there a, like a, a distribution pattern? Do they travel far from their nesting sites to these vessels? Um, does is there any impact on you know? changes in the vessel traffic to to where the birds choose to go and we're also doing a, a number of aerial surveys to see uh, just the changes in um, species abundance in, in certain MPAs and seeing um, sorry uh, uh, just seeing if that's any reflection on the habitat and vessel use in those areas too 
Yeah, yes, they had a great day out. I went to Inishtrahul uh, on, on, on a little boat where we have, um, it's an uninhabited kind of little island full of, it's, it's seabird central. So I kind of say there's no people, but you've got share loads of, of different kind of wonderful seabirds. And we've got, so there's an old lighthouse there that's abandoned in, in the lighthouse keeper's cottage. We've got at the moment three of our researchers kind of camping out. Uh, and 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 doing a census of this island, just of the the the, the birds there, focusing on three different species, and they kind of showed me a little bit what they did yesterday, and I was absolutely blown away because um, I'm a biologist, but I'm not an ornithologist, and I knew relatively little about it. And for me, all seabirds, for starters, I didn't even know that there were seabirds that are nocturnal, you know, that are kind of just flying at night, and so they 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 were showing me yesterday. Uh, we were walking along and, and there was a little, there was a, um, a dilapidated uh, stone wall. And they kind of say, oh, in here uh, are nests of these stone petrels. And so um, these kind of guys, and I said, um, right, they're sleeping in there. And I said, right. And then they had a, a little recorder. So they actually had a, like, you have your, your Bluetooth kind of, um, um, not a recorder, um, a loudspeaker at their phone. They put the call of these kind of guys onto their loudspeaker and uh, blasted it in there for 20 seconds blasted. You could well hear it. And then they could talk back. You go out of that wall, you got the call coming back. And you think, wow, I mean, I've I would have never in a million years thought that a bird kind of is sleeping in the stone wall. Then they showed me the Mount Shearwater, same kind of thing. So another species that's actually a night species. And they live more like in, 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 in something that looks like um, rabbit burrows or something. And they sleep in there. And so you go along, you've just got a bit of bracken and ferns and, and shrubbery. And they do it there. And all of a sudden you think, God, I've been stepping over, you know, these sleeping, rather not, not very common seabirds. And, and they have this kind of method for doing this. And then they're kind of talking about also using the spaniels to kind of snip them out. Where, where are they? Because how do you actually monitor how many of them there are? You know, birds all look the same. You've got to kind of get them in their nesting. But these guys are in burrowed nests, so you can't see them sitting on a tree or, or on, a, on a cliff. So, so you've got to find them inside, inside walls and inside burrows. So um, spectacular kind of work going on. And, and it really blew my mind. As a biologist, I yesterday came back and I had an epiphany. I'm absolutely into seabirds from now on. Um, it's, it's, uh, so, so there is some fantastic work going on, and they do this in lots of different places um, across uh, across Scotland and, and, and Northern Ireland, because we and, and the Republic of Ireland, because we really don't know enough we, how many birds there are, and birds will be affected by climate change and and where they are, and whether you know whether they there's this work how how we see them interacting with the fishing vessels we know that i mean even when i when i drove across in this tiny little boat we were followed by some birds wherever you can see there wouldn't there, there were no birds only where we were so you can see that there is an interaction between the people that use the environment and the birds so 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 studying that is something that we we just require in order to be able to to protect these fantastic looking little things i mean the 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 the, the, the stone petrels they are tiny little things they fit into your hands and they make a big fracas of a noise they get this kind of wall to not quite kind of hum but uh, but it was quite um, amazing so, so uh, they are—they are definitely. I want to see all of these really protected. Uh, 
So it's great, great uh, um, project that, that that's going on there, and um, yeah, I'm, 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 I hope we kind of manage to get our film across so that we can share that more widely. It's really brilliant. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, as long, as soon as you have all these things, I'm I'm very happy to share that with 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 my viewers and, and listeners. Uh, that will, that will be that will be awesome. I don't know, Alex, you're you're look you're. I thought that you want to want to jump in and chime in. I, yeah, well, we've got we've got a couple of other um, work packages there. So we've got the marine mammals work package. Um, so that's looking at cetaceans, which are whales and dolphins, and uh, the pinnipeds, which are the the seals. Um, and and I think those, along with the birds, they're they're the greatest um, species to use as an advocate for for cross border management of these features because th you don't have an Irish whale or a or an Irish whale or a Scottish whale. You know, they, they have no respect for borders whatsoever. They don't know that this bit of sea belongs to one nation or, or another. They just go where they need to go. Um, and so those are being those animals are being monitored um, in, in different different ways. So for some of the seals, they've had uh, tracking devices attached to the seal. That, that, that's fine for, for people that don't know the, the adhesive erodes naturally it doesn't harm the seal in any way and then the, the monitors float back to the surface but they give really good information of, of where the animals have gone the temperature of the water and, and things like that and, and then people can divulge or determine even um which activity those animals have been take, uh, undertaking whether that's sleeping basking just swimming hunting um so there's loads of different information that's coming out for, from that um in lockdown last year, we had a pod of um, orca come into Strangford Lock in, in Northern Ireland, um, chaperoned by a well-known male called John Coe, um, but they're resident, they're, they're considered resident in Scotland. So from the, the east coast of Scotland, they'd come down to the, to the east coast of Northern Ireland and, and you know, it was a fantastic event. I think that was probably one of the biggest things that people broke lockdown laws for <laughs> was to go and see the orca <laughs> in Strangford Lock because it was just such a spectacle. Um, so so we, we've, we've got all of the, those efforts. Uh, and the information coming out of that work package really demonstrates <clears throat> that, that, that the marine mammals are really, they're really wide ranging. They have their home zones, their home areas that they favor, but they'll go where they need to go for, to, to hunt or for whichever resources they need. And that's a real good um, demonstration of, of the benefits of cross-border management that, that this kind of interreg funding enables us to carry out. And then the work package that I'm responsible for is the, the Benthic work package and that's all the the boring and interesting stuff. So it's the tiny worms, it's the the snails, it's the things that live in the mud and you you rarely see. Um, but then that that's also the, some of the things that and people like to eat. Like and you see, and, nephrops, and you which know, give you scampi. And you know that you said like, oh, it's boring, but you know this is the most important part, right? <laughs> this is the very bottom. It is the foundation of the ben of the, the marine ecosystem. Exactly. Yeah, it's the benthic stuff and the and and the and the algae, the, the phytoplankton. Those, those are the two important bits. The the big fluffy things, or the big, you know, charismatic yeah. megafauna is not where it isn't isn't where it's at. <laughs> exactly. Um, Everybody loves orcas, like big orcas, but no, 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 no. You know, <laughs> these little worms. This is what matters first. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that's where we're at. 
Oh man, this is good. this is this is great. This is great, uh, folks. We're gonna be wrapping this up slowly, but I have two more things for you, um, and one of them is being involved in that work and in a, you know on both sides, both in the scientific research well, and, and seeing birds and and worms and orcas and all these things, and also seeing the impacts of it, and then seeing the attitude people you know we, we hear we have these big elephants like massive commercial you know bottom trolling salmon farms all this and plus climate change on top of that how how you how you think the future will play out for marine environment do you think that the future is bleak and we just if we just manage to you know hang on to some of the stuff that we still have that will be good or you 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 know, more optimistic and you see like, well, I think that the tide is changing and even through, you know, creation and funding of a project like yours, is that giving you, you know, that optimism, optimistic vibe? Like what's your, what's your, uh, you know, forecast for the future pers personally? I might, I might go first and then uh, Naomi and Anushka can, can lift everybody back up. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I we're it, it, it's obvious I and mean, we've seen the messages from from people like david attenborough um that, that we are globally it's not just the marine ecosystem but we are at a tipping point and we're in a position where projects like this allow us to develop more information to enable us to take action to change what's going on um but climate change is happening it's an inexorable process we can't stop that immediately we can undertake efforts to stop that gradually and hopefully slow it down and maybe the, the the systems will recover in a different way, in a more natural way, or respond to those efforts. But the trajectory we're on at the moment <clears throat> is that climate change is going to get more severe, which means uh, the distribution of, of taxa of species in relation to that is going to become more severe. So things that used to be in one place are no longer going to be there. They may turn up somewhere else. They may not. And we don't know that yet. But we need we need things like this to to raise our awareness more to ways that raise the data the, the underlying data um, the baselines so that we can we're in a position to to influence that change for the better um so I think part of me thinks we're we're stuck you know we've we've gone too far um, but the wider body of evidence says that we're still there's still that hope that we can change it for the better and that's where we need to go um so we we're in a precarious position but but we're we're in a in an almost fortunate one that at least we have that awareness to try and make the effort to change it back yeah i agree with um alex it's um uh, the position that we're in um i think we all accept that changes are already happening and all we can do is is try to find mitigation measures to to slow it down and to see what changes are are um, occurring in the species within within these areas and what can be done to try and, and help them and, and help promote them and it is important to get the people aware of, of what's what's going on and what could be done to try and, and help this, to try and reduce the impact. Um, 
I, I, we can't stop it, but we can certainly see what we can do to slow it down. And it, it's great to get um, uh, feedback and, and input from, from those who want and who want to become involved, who want to, to um, keep the environment uh, as abundant, as diverse as possible. Uh, and it's, um, it's bleak, but there's a lot of positivity out there and that just feeds into the, uh, our, our desire to do the best job that we can. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know, Scott, if you, if you want to uh, jump in and give your, give your view. Of, uh, your, your... Um, I didn't hear what the other said, so I may, may well uh, repeat myself. <clears throat> I'm... It's a big, big issue for me personally because I became my, my entire career kind of choice is because I want to make a difference. And um, yeah, it, is, it isn't an easy one. But I think if, if you're looking at it from the perspective of uh, an environment like the marine environment, I think um, as we are a bit like um, the top predators, uh, I think we will be gone or our, if, if, if it goes really bad, it, it affects our civilization. I don't even think it'll it'll affect human survival as a species, but perhaps of the civilization and the advanced kind of culture that we have, it will affect species. But if you're looking at it in the long, long, long tooth that we look at in evolutionary terms, this is a blip and you might get quite a large number of extinctions, but it will open up new things. We will not affect the bottom of the food chain or the creepy crawlies that Alex is working on, um, the algae, um, the, 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 the bacteria. Um, the, 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 the principle of life will continue. So in, in some ways, if you love, if you love the, the symphony of nature, I don't really worry. That will continue unless we blow the planet up with a nuclear war. I think life will continue and find solution and find new ways. Anything else will be, will be a question of how it um, affects the more, more the charismatic species, the, the kind of the icing on the cake will be affected rather than the uh, the, 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 the main makeup of the cake of life. So um, that isn't, uh, as I'm a human, human uh, and I have children, uh, that's not as uh, comforting uh, for me as a human, but uh, I think as somebody that loves um, nature and the ocean and uh, the long-term uh, game plan out there, it, it, it is, and I think it is completely up to us as to how much um, we, we, we destroy and we, we have to do that communally and people, you know, human human i think human ingenuity is massive um but um we are also we also seem to always do everything we can for the negative as much as for the positive and so um you know we, we are not very good at knowing that if we do x you know if you want to start with adam and eve you told them there's one thing you mustn't do and the first thing they go and do is a thing that they know they mustn't do <laughs> and that's a very human human kind of thing uh, so, so in, in that regard, I'm not all that hopeful that that um, that we won't um, perhaps have a lot of impact on on the environment. But nature is stronger than we think. I think when I when I was 20, I used to think that we have everything in our hands, and uh, increasingly I see that nature actually has us in its hands. And perhaps we don't. We're not quite as powerful as we think. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. That's 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 kind of my my take on this as well. That this is not so much save the planet, let's save ourselves. Planet will be okay <laughs> in the long run, um, folks. Uh, anyone who listens to this and would like to track what you do, um, get involved, 
um, be part of the consultation, how they can do that, how can get, they get in touch, how they can uh, keep track of what you're doing? Um, we have a Twitter account, which is at Marpam understroke Marpam, or sorry, at Marpam understroke project. So they're welcome to follow that and leave comments. Uh, there is an Irish regional MPA Facebook page for Northern Ireland uh, and Ireland. So they're welcome again to, to like that and see what we're doing. And again, we have uh, a project website, which we update regularly with what we're doing and any events that are hopefully going to be happening uh, when things maybe return to normal. And uh, yeah, if um, they go onto the project website, I think there's email addresses there as well if they need to contact anyone within the specific region they're interested in. Yeah, I'm, I'm in particular keen if there's any teachers out there that like me to come and talk to the classes, uh, just go to the website, get my email address and, 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 and drop me an invite. And if I can come, I'll come in person. If I can't come in person, I'll, I, I'm, I'm happy to kind of do a Zoom or a Glow or whatever um, kind of platform you're using with your, with your school class. Um, so that's an invite to any teacher. That's fantastic. And, and you know, obviously, anyone listening to this, I, I'll put all the uh, contacts and social media and website in the show notes uh, so they can go there and... Uh, um, listen, folks, uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure working with you, with talking with you. And I think that the work you do is absolutely fantastic. I, uh, you know, m much respect for, for doing what you do because it seems like, like I said, it's a mission impossible. It's a mammoth tasks and task and uh, you, you, you're working on it with optimism. So uh, thanks for that. If, if you have any, you know, final words of wisdom for our listeners and viewers? I'm not sure about wisdom, but uh, thanks to anyone who watches this show. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, folks. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Tommy. Bye-bye.